What is your view of the Bible? If we were to ask the writer of Hebrews that question, he would respond by saying that God's word is living, effective, cutting, penetrating, and discerning. In other words, he would say that the word of God, based upon Hebrews 4.12, is magnificent and that it is marvelous. If we were to interview your Bible, your copy of God's word, what would your Bible say about your view of it? If we were to call your Bible to the witness stand and ask it to testify, what would it say? Can you imagine your Bible walking to the witness stand? And as it's walking to the witness stand, dust is flying everywhere because you have not opened it in a while. Someone has said that the greatest dust storm in all of the world would take place if every Christian at the same time would open up their Bible to read it. Now, we probably need to modernize that. If every Christian would turn on their device to access their Bible, we would have the greatest power power outage that there's ever been in all of the world. Would your Bible come to the witness stand and point to a picture on the screen that is a picture of it itself, and on the cover it says, read me, having been printed in dust? Is that what your Bible would say? Would our use of the Bible match up to our belief about the Bible? There are times that Christians have the correct view of the Bible, and they will rattle off words and say that God's word is inerrant, that is, without error, that God's word is infallible, it won't fail, that God's word is authoritative, it is to govern life. And we believe that, but does our behavior back that up? When we look at our life, do we see that God's word is indeed authoritative in all areas and matters of faith and practice? In our text today, the psalmist, belief in behavior testifies to the fact that he believes that the Bible is the wonderful word of God. His proclamations, his petitions, even his pain affirms and reveals and indicates how marvelous and magnificent the word of God actually is. And his view of the Bible needs to be our view. His use and experience of the Bible needs to be our use and experience of the Bible. So I want you to join me today 
as we look at Psalm 119, verses 129 through 136, from the subject, the wonderful word of God. The wonderful, amazing, marvelous word of God. In verses 129 through 131, note the proclamations of the psalmist that affirm God's word is wonderful. The psalmist makes some statements. He makes some declarations. He makes some proclamations. And when you look at these statements and proclamations, he is declaring beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's word is indeed wonderful. The psalmist proclaims that God's word is extraordinary. He begins the stanza by saying to God, thy testimonies are wonderful. That's what he wants God to know. That's what he wants everyone to know. He says, God, your testimony, your word, those statements about who you are and what you have done, they are absolutely wonderful. They are extraordinary. They're really beyond human capability to understand. That's how marvelous and wonderful he sees the word of God to be. Earlier, he prayed in verse 18 of Psalm 119. He said, God, I need you to open my eyes that I might see the wonderful things in your word. From the standpoint of the psalmist, the Bible contains wonderful, marvelous, amazing things. And he says to God, God, I need you to do a divine operation on my eyes so that I see those marvelous, wonderful things. And even in verse 27, he asked God to give him understanding. Why? So that he could meditate on God's wonders. When he says wonders, he's talking about the Bible. He's saying that the Bible not only contains wonderful things, but that the Bible is wonderful and it is that can be described as wonders. But the psalmist doesn't just stop there by talking about how wonderful the word of God is. He goes on. He lets us know that if God's word is indeed wonderful, then it ought There ought to be evidence in our lives that that is true. And what's the evidence in the life of the psalmist? Where's the proof, psalmist? You're talking loud. We hear what you're saying. You're saying that God's word indeed is marvelous and wonderful, that God's testimonies are wonderful. But where's the proof? Where's the evidence? He says in the last part of verse 129, he says, therefore, since God's word is wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Do you see that connection? The connection is that if I truly believe God's word is wonderful, there will be evidence in my life. And the evidence won't be that I read the word or hear the word or study the word or memorize the word or even meditate on the word. The psalmist points out that the evidence is that I obey the word. 
We can wax eloquent about our view of the Bible. And we can sing songs that talk about how wonderful God's word is. But the evidence, the proof that we really truly believe that is in our walk. Do I keep God's word? How hypocritical it is to proclaim that God's word is wonderful and marvelous And yet I won't keep this wonderful word when it comes to my daily living. So the psalmist proclaims God's word is extraordinary. You won't find anything at all that's like the word of God. And I realize for some this might be a foreign concept that you might not be able to really grasp it and appreciate it. And that means that you need to let God's word be at work in your life. It doesn't just come, this kind of a statement come because you put your faith in Christ, because you got saved. This kind of statement comes from walking with God and letting God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. The Bible won't be wonderful to you If you don't integrate it into your very life, day in and day out. The psalmist also proclaimed that God's word enlightens. It enlightens. This is one of the many reasons why God's word is wonderful. For him to say God's word is testimonies are wonderful. Why is that? The psalmist tells you in verse 130, it's because the word of God enlightens you. And I want to point out and stress to you that this verse is not saying that the Bible itself gives light or gives understanding, but it's the unfolding of God's word, the unveiling of God's word. It's coming to understand God's word by means of teaching and God opening up scripture to us. I can wave this book in front of you as much as I want, but that won't give you light. It's not a flashlight that you just turn on and it gives light. No, in order for God's word to give light, in order for the word of God to enlighten us, it must be unfolded to us. The psalmist says it's the unfolding God of your word that gives light. We live in a dark world. We we mentioned that on New Year's Day. We live in a dark world. Our minds are darkened. We need light. And, And the Bible is not, quote, just a flashlight, but it's the unfolding. It's the opening up the word of God, so that we can understand it and know what it says, that gives light. So that the reality is that the Bible becomes a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But but if the word is not unfolded, if the word is not opened up to us, there'll be no light, there'll be no understanding. And that's why we encourage you, as members of Fairview, Be involved in studying God's word. Take advantage of others teaching you the word. 
unfolding the word to you, opening up the word to you. Why? It's that time when the word becomes light and the word gives understanding. The psalmist speaks of the word giving light, giving understanding. To who? He says to the simple. Now don't take that in a derogatory way. He's not calling you or me a simpleton. Okay, so he's not uh, uh, trying to act like if you don't understand the word that you're a simpleton. No, what he's saying is that God gives light and understanding to the simple, that is, those who are childlike, uh, those who lack understanding. And this is a wonderful benefit. The, the declaration that the psalmist is making, that God's word enlightens for people who live in a dark world, for those who are trying to be rescued from the darkness of mind that was ours outside of Christ, to those who put their faith and their trust in Christ, the word of God gives light. The unfolding of the word of God does that. And that's why the psalmist says God's word is wonderful, because it gives light, it gives understanding. The psalmist finally proclaims that God's word is desirous. It's not distasteful. We shouldn't have to try to cram the word of God down your throat or my throat. It's not like castor oil that some of us were forced to take. No, the, the psalmist is saying God's word is desirous. And he says uh, in verse 131 that he longs, he yearns, he craves for the word of God, the wonderful word of God. That's his daily experience, hungering. Craving, longing, yearning for this word because he knows that this word is wonderful and that this word can do so many marvelous things in the lives of the child of God. And so he expresses in a very graphic way this longing, this craving that he has for God's word. He says to God, I Open my mouth. That's the picture he wants coming into our mind. I open my mouth. It's the picture of a bird whose mouth is open, waiting and ready to receive food. But then he changes the imagery a little bit. Not only did I open my mouth, he says, I panted. He speaks of an animal panting, mouth wide open, tongue hanging out, thirsty and hungry, longing and yearning. Those, that's his attitude to the word of God. His attitude is not my mouth is shut, my eyes is closed, I want nothing at all to do with God's word. No, he says, I have opened my mouth. I'm panting. 
I'm like the deer at the water brook, panting after the water. The psalmist is panting and longing and yearning for God's marvelous word. We can't proclaim God's word is wonderful and marvelous if we have no desire for it. If it takes the witness stand, and as it walks to the stand, there's dust everywhere. If your device short circuits because you haven't used it all week to access God's word, here was a man who was convinced that God's word was indeed wonderful. And he proclaims that over and over and over again. But there's more. There's more from the psalmist's belief and behavior that declares that the Bible is the wonderful word of God. In verses 132 to 135, we have the petitions of the psalmist, the prayers of the psalmist that, uh, that reveal that God's word is wonderful. Uh, when you look at the settings, the setting of these verses, the, the psalmist is praying. He's crying out to God. He's not just simply have made proclamations. He did that, but now he turns to prayer. And when you examine the prayer life of this man, what does it proclaim? What does it say? What does it reveal? It reveals that the word of God, the Bible is wonderful. And so he makes a number of requests, but I reduce them down to basically four. He petitions God, first of all, for grace. I don't know if there's anyone who calls himself a Christian uh, who thinks that they don't need grace. (laughs) You look at this man, he believed that he needed the grace of God. And he was a man who was saturated with the word. He was a man who loved God and lived by the word. And here we are stumbling and bumbling in our walk with God. And we forget God. Give me grace. Give me grace. And so he says in verse 132, God, would you turn to me and be gracious to me? He knows, as Bert sang last Sunday, that God's eye is on the sparrow and he watches over me. But, but this goes a little bit deeper than that. He's not just simply saying, God, be gracious to me. He's saying, first of all, God, turn to me. He wants personal attention from his God. It's like, God, you got all of these people in the world that you are concerned about. You care about your people, your children. But I need you, God, to turn individually to me. I need personal attention. And I, and I don't just need you to turn to me, but I need you to be gracious to me. I need your love. I need your favor. I need your mercy. I need your loving kindness. This statement, turn to me and be gracious to me, found several times in the book of Psalms. 
at least 17 different times. It seems like these writers of the Psalms understood that they needed grace. And so throughout the 150 uh, chapters, books in the Psalm, you find them saying, God, turn to me. He's not saying, God, neglect everybody else. He's just saying, God, I need you not only to look at everybody else, but I need you to turn to me and give me attention. And, and what I need, God, is your grace. He's found out in his walk with God that God has a record, God has a habit of turning and giving grace to those who love him. Don't miss that. He says at the end of verse 132, turn to me and be gracious to me after thy manner with those who love thy name. God, I have read in your word, the psalmist says, that, that it is your habit, that it is your custom, it is your practice to, to pour out grace to those who love you. And God, I'm one of those. The psalmist says, God, I love you. And I am banking on your word. I am standing on the promises of God that you, God, are gracious to those who love you. And so he says, God, just act according to your word. Just act as you have revealed yourself. Be gracious to me. And what a wonderful prayer to pray. Do you have enough boldness? Do you have enough courage that in your situation you can come to God and demand of God, God, turn to me. God, be gracious to me. And I'm not doing it because I think I'm something, but I know who you are. I know you are the God who pours out grace upon those who love him. And so I want to encourage you, be bold in your prayers to God. Don't be ashamed to, to, to ask for God to pour out his grace in your life. When you think about our circumstances, our situation, we take matters so much into our own hands and do what we think is best for me. Sometimes we just need to say, God, I don't know what's best. I just need your grace, your loving kindness. I need your mercy. We, we, we think too much of ourselves. And we need to humble ourselves and depend upon God and say, God, be gracious to me. I need your personal attention. Be gracious to me. And then he petitions for stability in verse 133. This is really a manifestation of God's grace. He cries out to God and says, God, establish my footsteps in thy word. He wants God to stabilize him. He wants God to steady his life. And when we read these words, there's a tendency that some of us might think that is saying, God, establish my footsteps in your word because we've been influenced by that great song, Order My Steps. 
Order my steps in your word. And that's true. We do want that. But that's not what the psalmist is praying. He's saying, God, establish my footsteps by means of your word. Use your word to stabilize me. So instead of thinking, God, order my steps, maybe we need to think along the lines of Aretha Franklin. When she says rock steady and sings rock steady. That's what the psalmist is saying. Rock steady. I don't want to be teetering and tottering. I don't want to be falling. I want you, God, to stabilize my feet, my life, my conduct. I want you to do that. And not only that, God, I need you also in close association with that prayer. I need you to make sure that you do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. He doesn't want any iniquity at all to have dominion over him. We've been studying the doctrine of sin on Wednesday nights. And there are a lot of words for sin in the Old Testament. Here's one of the words, iniquity. And it's the idea of deception, falsehood, lying. But what the psalmist wants is not only for his feet and life to be stabilized, he wants to make sure that there's not one iniquity out of all of the iniquities that would have dominion over his life and would tyrannize his life. He doesn't want sin, so to speak, to be reigning and ruling in his life. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the power of sin in our life has been broken. But even though that's true, in practice, sin might dominate us. Sin might tyrannize us. And the psalmist is saying, God, stabilize my life. God, don't let any iniquity, don't let any sin have dominion over me. Not even one sin. What a prayer. He wants his life to be lived in accordance to the word of God. The psalmist goes on. In verse 134, he petitions God for release. He petitions God for liberation. He wants to be set free. He, he pictures himself in some sense as in bondage. To who? To those who oppress him. To those who are oppressing him. Last Sunday, we saw certain individuals that the psalmist encountered in verses 121 and 122. The oppressors, the arrogant, his enemies. And they were oppressing him. And now he pictures himself in some sense almost in bondage to these oppressors. And so he cries out to his God and says to his God, God, redeem me. Redeem me from the oppression of man. Set me free. Loosen me. Liberate me. He's not praying this. He's not saying this because he's tired of being oppressed. Don't miss why he's praying this. He's praying this, she says, that I may keep thy precepts. God, this oppression is hindering me from Obeying you. 
My, my oppressors are making it hard and difficult for me to obey you. And so I want you to free me, redeem me, liberate me, set me free so that I can keep your commandments. That's what I want, God. I'm not interested, so to speak, in living a life free of oppressors and oppression. God, I'm interested in living a life that is bent on obeying you. And if there's anything that's causing me and hindering me from obeying you, God, I want you to deal with it. His fourth and final prayer request is in verse 135. And it's almost as if he comes full circle. He started off petitioning for grace. And now he comes to verse 135 and he petitions for favor, for blessing. General word, broad word, but ain't nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with asking God to bless you, to favor you, to be gracious to you. That ought to be the cry of your heart almost each and every day. Yes, you can get particular. You can zero in on things you need God to do. But just overall, God, would you bless me? God, would you be favorable to me? God, would you let your face smile on me? That's what he's saying. He says, make thy face shine upon thy servant. And he really uses that word light again. He said that God's word enlightens us. It gives us light. And he says God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And now he's saying, God, I need you to light me, so to speak. I need your face. God doesn't have a face. I hope you know that. Uh, That's just a term used so that we can better understand the character of God, who he is. And so he says, God, make your face look upon me, shine upon me. May your countenance come upon me, so to speak. And here at Fairview, you know at the end of our service, we have a benediction. Oftentimes, Ryan Tolan will offer a benediction from the book of Numbers. It's called the Aaronic Benediction, but in that benediction, it says, The Lord make his face shine upon you. Uh, That's a wonderful desire and and blessing that when we leave here, we, we want the Lord to make his face shine on us. We want the Lord to smile upon us. We want God's favor. We want God's grace. And so the psalmist says, God, would you smile on me? Would you make your face shine upon me? And again, he understands there's many, many ways that God could do that, that God could show his favor, his blessing to us. He doesn't bother to mention all of the many different ways. He just identifies one. He ends verse 135 by saying, God, would you favor me? Would you bless me? Would you be gracious to me by teaching me your word? Teach 
me. He's not a man of arrogance, not a man of pride. He has not reached a point in his life where he doesn't need God to be his personal instructor. We live in this day and age where uh, you can pay to have a personal trainer. Uh, You don't need a personal trainer in the spiritual realm. You need God to be your personal instructor. And and all you have to ask, you don't have to pay any money. Uh, All you have to ask and cry out is, God, teach me. Teach me. And, And the question we have to ask, do we want to be taught? Do we want God to really unfold his word and give us light and give us understanding? Do we want God to teach us? That's what the psalmist is saying. God, teach me. He's saying, God, all of the blessings that you could bestow upon me, all of the favors that you could give to me, here's the one that I want. God, I want you to be my personal instructor. I want you to teach me your word. And and I guarantee you, God ain't going to teach you apart from those who have the spiritual gift of teaching. God has given to the church teachers so that you and I can sit under those teachers and be instructed in the word of God. You might be saying to me, when you get taught, I don't see you at a Bible study learning. Come into my office. I got tons of teachers in my office. Come into my home. Teachers, teachers, because I understand I need God to teach me. And one of the ways that he teaches me is through the teachings of others. And so we need to be taught, Fairview. We need to cry out and say, God, be my ultimate teacher. Be my ultimate teacher. And so this stanza of eight verses ends with the psalmist talking about his pain, his P-A-I-N, his pain. And that expresses and indicates how wonderful and magnificent God's word is. The pain of the psalmist amazingly reveals and indicates that God's word is wonderful. So when we come to the last of these eight verses, we don't find the psalmist rejoicing. We find him weeping. We don't find the psalmist glad. We find him sad. We find him him brokenhearted. We find him weeping and wailing. We find him a a, a basket case, so to speak. He, He tells God, my eyes shed streams of water. He he's using hyperbole. He he's going beyond what is actually the case. So that God would know and that you and I would know how much the psalmist is in pain. God, my eyes are shedding not a few tears, but my eyes are shedding streams of rivers of water. 
If we were to look at this man literally, we would see rivers of water running out of his eyes. We, we would see him lying on his pillow and his pillow is soaked with tears. His clothes are soaked with tears. He is weeping. He is wailing. He is distraught. He is sad. He is broken hearted. Why? Why? He says at the end of our text, because they do not keep thy law. Who's they? It's not his eyes. That they are his enemies. That they are those who don't live for God. And the psalmist sees them not obeying the word of God. And what's his response? In some sense, he could be upset. In verse 53, he says, righteous indignation has consumed me because they have broken thy law. So he possibly could have said, I'm upset. God, take action, like he said last week. He could do that. It could be that he could take the attitude that he takes in the future in verse 158, where he says, I loathe those, I hate those who do not keep thy law. But he's not mad. He's not hating. He's weeping. He's crying. He's wailing. He's brokenhearted. Because there's a group of people who aren't willing to obey the wonderful word of God. God's word is so wonderful to him that when he sees others not obeying it, not living it, he weeps and he cries. Have you ever been there? Do you ever weep? Do you ever cry when you find there are people who don't obey the word of God? Or do you just get upset, get mad? The psalmist realized that there were people who were not obeying God's word and it brought streams of water to his eyes. It broke his heart. And sometimes we experience this as parents, grandparents, as mates, when we see individuals not breaking, not living the word of God, but breaking the law of God. But is this the kind of response that we have? Does it break you when others don't keep God's word? But may I say it even more personally? Does it break you when you don't keep God's word? What's your response when you sin against God? Do you ever weep over your sins? Do you ever fall apart 
Because you have failed God, you have disobeyed God. Do you you ever cover your pillows with, with tears? Because once again, you have done something that you know dishonors God. And so the psalmist loves God's word so much that when it is disobeyed, it causes him pain. And may that be true of us, that when God's word is disobeyed, may it cause us pain. R. Kent Hughes, in his book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, introduces his readers to an individual by the name of Lieutenant General William K. Harrison. This is, was a, no, basically he summarizes his life and gives all of his pedigrees, etc. But he goes on to say that when Harrison was 20 years old, he made a commitment to take in God's word, to read the word of God. And what was his commitment? He committed himself to read through the Old Testament once a year and to read through the New Testament four times a year. So that commitment he made at 20 was still in play when he was 90 years old. So that it could be said that he read through the Old Testament 70 times and he read through the New Testament 280 times. People who knew this individual said that his word, his life, his decision, everything about him was under the influence of the word of God. R. Kent Hughes summarizes the life of this man by saying he fleshed out Psalm 119, verses 97 through 100. Let me read those verses for you where the psalmist says, Oh, how I love thy law. It's is my meditation all the day. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed thy precepts. My friend, God's word will bless your life. God's wonderful word will do that for you. And I'm not here standing before you saying you need to read through the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. Some of us are too old to make that happen. But ain't nothing wrong with that. That the word of God ought to have a focal point and a central part in our lives. And what I am saying to you and to me is that the psalmist, his proclamation his petitions, his pain, affirm and reveal and indicate that the Bible is the wonderful word of God. And as I said earlier, I know that might sound foreign to you because your Bible might have on its cover in dust the words, read me. And I just want to encourage you to make God's word a vital part of your life. Cry out to God and say, God, I understand how valuable and how precious your word is. Would you make this a living book in my life? And start 
to read the word and hear the word and study the word and memorize the word and meditate on the word. And more importantly, start obeying the word of God. Obey this wonderful word that the psalmist says is indeed marvelous and wonderful. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. It indeed is wonderful. And as the writer of Hebrews says, it's living, it works, it's cutting, it's penetrating, and discerning. And Lord, that's what he said to those who are Christians, to those who have repented of their sins and have put their faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that the Bible is your word that you use to bring about salvation in our life and even sanctification. Lord, help us to proclaim with our lives that your word is wonderful. May our prayers reveal how precious and valuable your word is to our life. And Father, even in our pain, when we see and hear of others rejecting your word, your wonderful word, disobeying it, may we grieve and be in sorrow over that. And may we grieve and be in sorrow over our own sin. Help us to come to you and ask you to make the Bible a vital part of our life so that we're not just saying that it's wonderful, but that we're experiencing the fact that it is wonderful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.